Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I'd like to offer my welcome to the hundreds of Bernie Kratz who are... I've been on a campaign trail with you, and there's millions like us across the nation. There's, million li- there's millions like us, and you should never, ever be underestimated. That is never, never, because you guys work so hard, and I respect and admire you so much, because you're the future of this party. Building a progressive vision with genuine progressive solutions like universal health care, free college tuition, getting big money out of politics, and so much more. I like Gavin Newsom's state bank, too. I thought, that, I thought there were two radical concepts today. One of them was Gavin's state bank, and the other I thought was a really beautiful job um, on, on the voter, voter rights. I thought those were really very good campaigns. And it's a vision, the vision the Democratic Party needs to desperately adopt to enfranchise the disillusioned Americans is vision, courage, and a sense of purpose. The status quo doesn't work, Democrats. We are not, we're not interested in the status quo. Don't tell us, don't tell us that we have to be more conservative in more conservative areas. That has not worked. We have gotten nowhere. This year, we've got a huge opportunity to set this party together, bring this party together, and set this nation on the right track as leaders in this country. And that is to establish a model with progressive leadership of taking the step for the Democrats to unite on supporting SB 562. I listened to all the speeches very carefully, and I listened to all the doublespeak on this issue, and frankly, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the... I support universal health care. Well, then support SB 562. It's the real deal. Right? Right? It's not enough to say, we want everybody covered. You want everybody covered? There's only one way to do that. The public option is not the option. It's still insurance. It's still insurance. We want health care, not insurance, right? I mean, honestly, I just, I really, you know, I want to thank Senators uh, Ricardo Laura and Tony Atkins for having the courage to break ranks and introduce SB 562. What that means, if successful, Everyone covered, uninsured rate zero, the end of medical bankruptcies, an end to having people put their lives at risk to put food on the table by not having chemotherapy when they need to, patient choice, one medical card, use it anywhere with no co-pays, no deductibles, no higher premiums due to your age, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, where you live, are the obscenely labeled Shame on us, pre-existing conditions. Who at the hell is a pre-existing condition, right? That means you're sick. Healthcare is a transformational issue for the Democrats. It can reinvigorate our party. We've got a window to demonstrate this nationally. California can show the way. Yeah. I'm sick of the market talk by the Democrats. I'm sick of... Can you tell me how you're going to pay for it? We pay taxes. You set priorities in your budget. It isn't our health care. How about that? 
I like to think that we're a society and not a market. When you talk about charter schools, you're talking about making our education a market. When you're talking about insurance and health care, you're talking about a market. We want health care. We want public education. Isn't that what we want? So I'm asking you, Democrats, and this is an appeal, and then I'm going to leave you off. I'll leave the stage. Um, and you'll be very glad, most of you probably, that are traditional party members, because I know how much you love us. Um, and I'm warning you, I, this is actually a warning, and th th this is my unification speech, which is a warning, which is, if you dismiss progressive values and reinforce the dynamic status quo, don't assume the activists in California or around this country are going to stay with the Democratic Party. Millions of people are hurting. We've never had a moment like this. We all need to embrace SB 562, and if we don't embrace that, then shame on us, because every death, every person suffering is your fault, Democrats. You got the power, you got the majorities, you can do this, right? And finally, I just want to say this word. Bernie Sanders actually asked, well, I was with him last week, and he said California can make his job easy. He's fighting against Donald Trump. We've got Jerry Brown. Come on, Democrats, Jesus. I mean, what does it take? You know that Bernie is right. Okay, so last word. I want the party unified. But we're not going to unify around the status quo. We're not going to unify around around consensus about nothing. It's not about nothing. It's not consensus for nothing or about nothing. Consensus for consensus stake is over. We've lost and we've lost and we've lost and we're going to win. We're going to win and we're going to move this movement, Bernie Kratz, nurses and all the progressive Democrats, we're going to move this movement across the nation. Thank you. Today we have Ken Zinn with us, who is the Public Policy Director for National Nurses United. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much. I'm actually pretty excited to have you on because I want to uh, talk about many aspects of your policy platform because you don't only support Medicare for All, you get behind other progressive initiatives. But let's first start with Medicare for All. Maybe walk us through um, how the nurses initially got involved with trying to pass universal health care and some of the things that led up to them to get behind this type of platform. Well, the, the nurses have been involved in this issue for 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 decades, really. Um, so nurses are, of course, the frontline caregivers in uh, acute care hospitals and clinics across the country, and they are seeing um, uh, in their patients a microcosm of society. They're seeing the the uh, problems of uh, a health insurance industry that denies them um, care. They see people who have no insurance at all, who um, um, who are uh, either delaying care or have been denied care altogether. Um, they're seeing uh, people sicker and sicker than they ever have been for a whole variety of reasons. 
Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that uh, we don't have a healthcare system in this country at all. We have a hodgepodge of uh, different ways of paying for it, but no national right to uh, healthcare. And we think uh, as a human right that everyone should have guaranteed therapeutic care. That's just you know essential um, uh, for nurses as patient advocates, uh, which is a huge part of what they do for a living. So this has been uh, front and center literally for decades for registered nurses. And I think it's fair to say that uh, today we're seeing the uh, that campaign, that issue, getting more and more traction than ever before. Yeah, no, it is definitely picking up steam in the last few years. Uh, so back in 1972, there was the HMO Act that was uh, came into fruition that pretty much led, in my opinion, to the place we are now with for-profit health insurers. And there's that leaked audio that um, occurred under the Nixon administration where uh, the Kaiser representative was basically saying the less care we give them, the more money we make. And I think that should have been a huge wake-up call. Um, so now you say the nurses has been the nurses have been involved for decades. What were some of the initial first things that you folks did to try to get the public behind this idea of universal health care? Well, going back to to those times, but also particularly when the uh, when Bill Clinton started to um, talk about you know what kind of healthcare system um, his administration might undertake, and if you remember, he appointed the first lady Hillary Clinton at the time to spearhead the that effort. Uh, nurses were on the front lines of saying uh, we don't need more managed care. And we don't need um, entrenching the insurance industry and giving them more profits. Uh, what we need is a single-payer system along the lines of the Canadian system um, where the government is the single-payer. There's uh, uh, that you ensure that everyone insure, not insure, but ensure that everyone has uh, the right to therapeutic care, to, uh, your status, as, uh, economic status, your race, your gender, et cetera, have no bearing on that, and certainly take it out of the world of employment, because a lot of people then and now um, depend on their employer to uh, provide health insurance. And at the time, even in the early 90s, um, uh, already there were uh, many, many strikes happening in unionized uh, industries where that were over uh, the attempt by employers to shift the cost of healthcare onto the backs of of the workers. And, uh, you know, just about every strike you could think of, that was a central issue was healthcare uh, and the cost of healthcare. And so this growing attempt, you know, uh, companies and industries that were historically providing 100% of the cost of care were pushing first for 90%. Then it was 80%, you know, 80-20 plans. And then it's 80-20 plans with high deductibles and even 70-30 plans. Um, and uh, there's actually a study that just came out that said that of people who uh, have employer-provided health insurance, uh, a full one-fourth of them have these uh, high deductible plans. That you know, you've got uh, deductibles of five, six thousand dollars, where people cannot afford to use the insurance that they have. So it's not about you know the statistic of how many people are insured and how many are not insured. That's somewhat meaningless if you have insurance and you cannot afford to use it. Um, and, you know, the huge percentage of people don't even have $1,000 in the bank for any any purpose. 
So the idea that they would be able to spend five or six thousand on their deductible um, is is crazy, and that's now one out of every four uh, people who who are you know have the benefit of employer provided health insurance. They they can't afford to use it. So much less the 29 million people in this country who have no insurance whatsoever, or those who are on now the uh, ACA uh, you know health uh, uh, markets where they have these, you know, sort of uh, horrible plans with very high costs, and they can't afford to use those either, and those costs keep going up. So we have a really unworkable system of paying for health care, and all of that balkanization, that compartmentalization of uh, different pockets uh, uh, paying for these plans means that you get no, no uh, economies of scale, you get no uh, cost savings because... Um, there's no one entity that has uh, that much bargaining leverage with healthcare providers, and that's what needs to happen. That's why you need one payer, which is the government. One, one of the reasons why Medicare is so cost-effective, uh, not only is it uh, hugely popular and effective for people 65 and older, but it also is able to uh, bargain with healthcare providers to say, look, if you want uh, us to insure these people and pay for your services, that means you've got to have reduced rates and, you know, hospitals and doctors do it all the time. So, you know, because they have the leverage, you can imagine what that leverage would be if you were the only payer for everyone, not just people over 65. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's correct. correct. Medicare having an overhead of around 3%, where your average private insurer comes in around 30%. So it is economically more efficient. One of the things that bothered me about the Part D that was passed on the Medicare bill was they built into that this um, idea that they can't negotiate drug rates with the pharmaceutical companies. So it hamstrings the government right. from negotiating lower rates. So it's it's literally created a state-sponsored monopoly of sorts. And it was one of the things that George Bush did that really infuriated me because this this is something we should be providing our seniors, but not at not for the sole benefit of corporations, which is what it sort of became. Um, you brought up, I want to go back and talk about the 90s a little bit. You brought up um, the Clintons initially coming in and talking about managed care. And I think people mistakenly think back to that period and imagine that what Hillary was talking about was single payer health care, and it wasn't. And at that time, you had the DLC, the, Dieter, the Democrat Leadership Conference, Um, whose sole goal was to pull the party to the right and to get away from progressive um, politics, get away from the idea of social safety nets, of any sort of FDR policy. And so those things were sort of happening at the same time, and it kind of blew up. Um, So I was really happy when Bernie Sanders, when he was first starting running for president of the primary, when he was talking about single-payer Medicare for all, he actually meant that. It wasn't some sort of corporate handout where it was going to be an opportunity for these corporations and pharmaceutical companies to come in and profiteer off of people's health. So I think that was really the first time we had on a large national scale a um, legitimate, viable political um, candidate for president that was that was talking in these terms. So since FDR, at least, so that was great, and I think it really galvanized the American population. And I'm excited to see that it's not just the Democratic base that responds to the idea of Medicare for all. I'm seeing Republican voters um, starting to reach a plurality of support as well. 
Well, certainly, uh, you know, people's um, uh, doesn't, you know, uh, their healthcare uh, catastrophes don't care about their political party. Um, so there's a very good reason for, you know, for people, no matter what their political stripe, to understand that the current system is unsustainable. That uh, there's so many people who are in crisis over healthcare bills. Uh, it's still the single largest cause of bankruptcies is medical bankruptcies. Um, that affects Republicans, Democrats, independents um, across the board. And the current system is is simply unsustainable. I mean, uh, if we really care about, uh, and we're, we're, you know, the, uh, we're, we're paying more per capita than any other uh, OECD, you know, rich country, but we're getting really bad results. Um, all the healthcare indices, uh, you know, on the World Health Organization, you know, scales, are really bad on so many different issues on on infant mortality and on uh, on hypertension and diabetes and on so many issues that we're spending more and more than everyone but getting worse and worse results and that's got to change uh, one to make people healthier but also because um, we simply cannot as a country afford to to do this anymore and you know we're we're one of the few countries that still makes employers pay a huge amount of the cost of this, um, and it makes those employers, you know, just from a pure you know, Republican business standpoint, it makes these employers uncompetitive. Uh, you know, the price of a car made in the United States versus the price of a car made in Canada, for example, is uh, a huge part of the extra cost is the healthcare cost. And it doesn't make any sense to, for as a country that we do that. That's a really solid point, and it is a good uh, selling point for conservatives because the economic efficiencies are very robust. And there's a reason that, uh, like in Sweden, my family's from Sweden, conservatives in Sweden would never do what we do in this country because they think it's insane. It just doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint. And you're right about adding that extra burden to a small business, somebody that um, – you know, they could it could make or break the difference in their business uh, being sustainable and flourishing or closing down shop. So it's it doesn't make sense from that perspective either. So recently there was a, a study that was released by speaking of conservatives, a conservative think tank that actually takes money from the Koch brothers uh, that was arguing that Medicare for all is far, far more economically efficient, like we we're just discussing than our current system. And it highlighted a savings of $2 trillion, um, which – so it was kind of odd to see a libertarian think tank. And I think it was the uh, Mercatus, Mercatus Center? Yeah, Merc- Mercatus, yeah. Okay. Um, so but what really bothered me about this was when the AP picked up the study, it used the headline, Medicare for All projected to cost $32.6 trillion. That was what they led with. They didn't talk about the fact that it will save us two trillion on the back end. I was so to me, this is how the media tries to frame a pro corporation argument that's not entirely truthful. It's disingenuous, but it could also be harmful to our movement because if the general population just reads that, they automatically think, "Oh, we can't afford it." How do we fight this? Let me thank the Koch brothers of all people for sponsoring a study that shows that Medicare for All would save the American people $2 trillion over a 10-year period. I suspect that that is not what the Koch brothers intended to do, but that is what is in the study of the Mercatus Center 
an organization that is significantly funded by the Koch brothers. At a time when the United States spends far more per capita on healthcare than any other country on earth, almost 18% of our GDP, a Medicare for all healthcare system would save the average family significant sums of money. It will do that by substantially reducing the administrative costs now taking place as a result of the billing, bureaucracy, and insatiable greed within the insurance industry, whose main function in life is not to make people well, but to make stockholders incredibly rich. If we can get rid of the profiteering, the dysfunction, and the incredible waste within the current healthcare system, if we get rid of the advertising and the high-priced compensation packages of healthcare executives, we can save hundreds of billions of dollars each and every year. Medicare for all will also significantly reduce the rapidly escalating and outrageous cost of prescription drugs. Depending on income, an individual may pay a little bit more in taxes to finance Medicare for all, but they will save thousands of dollars each and every year because they will no longer be paying insurance company premiums, deductibles, or co-payments to the private for-profit companies that now run our healthcare system. Today, under our current dysfunctional healthcare system, believe it or not, it costs more than $28,000 a year to provide healthcare to the typical family of four, $28,000 a year. Those costs will go down, not up, under a Medicare for all system. Here is the bottom line. If every major country on earth can guarantee healthcare to all and achieve better healthcare outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do, please do not tell me that the United States of America cannot do the same. Needless to say, there is huge opposition to this legislation from the powerful special interests that profit from the current wasteful healthcare system we have today. The insurance companies, the drug companies, Wall Street and the Koch brothers are devoting a lot of money to lobbying, campaign contributions, and television ads to defeat this proposal. But they are on the wrong side of history. Guaranteeing healthcare as a right is important to the American people, not just from a moral and financial perspective. It also happens to be what the majority of the American people want. In the last poll that I saw, 63% of Americans now support moving to a Medicare for all system. The time is long overdue for the United States to join every other industrialized country and guarantee health care to all in a cost-effective manner. And that is what Medicare for all is about. Thank you. Well, I think it's to show the, the total picture. And I think uh, uh, Senator Sanders did that when he ran for president. He did it when he introduced his, his uh, Senate uh, Medicare for All bill. Um, I, you know, except for that initial AP story on the Mercatus study, which was, uh, I agree, was horrible. Um, you know, the other, a lot of the other press uh, stories were calling attention to the fact that even the Cook brothers 
were saying that there would be a two trillion dollar savings. So there's a there's a actually a useful column from the uh, uh, Yahoo um, finance uh, columnist named Rick Newman, uh, who also says Medicare for all could save businesses trillions of dollars, not just the country, but businesses. He said, look, you could. You could, uh, if you get rid of the requirement that businesses pay premiums at all, right, for their employees, and even if you doubled their taxes or tripled their taxes, they could still come out ahead. So, again, as for from an entrepreneurial standpoint, uh, businesses don't want this uh, ever uh, increasing cost and unpredictably uh, rising cost on their balance of sheets. That there's a reason why they have a, a serious self-interest in getting it off. And having costs under control, even if it means they're shifting from paying, they or you know the uh, individuals are paying taxes. At least there's a system that makes some sense. So um, that it's interesting that the the Koch brothers study sort of blew up in their face, having unintended consequences, showing what what kind of savings actually would exist with the system. But so maybe there's a shift happening. If that was in the Yahoo business section, so maybe there's a shift happening where it becomes the health insurance corporations, the pharmaceutical companies on one side and the rest of big business on the other, because you're correct. The big business that's not involved in the health industry is paying the cost for their profiteering. And it would make sense to me that they would finally come to the table and agree with most of the American population that the system isn't sustainable. Hasn't quite gotten there yet, but maybe that's a place we're headed to. So H.R. 676, which is the federal Medicare for all bill, is obviously something that you folks are supporting among some other organizations. What are your thoughts on how this finally happens? I know that Conyers has been introducing this bill for many years, but we finally have traction this time. We have a lot of Democrats that are signing on as co-sponsors, which is great to see. Um, Obviously, Bernie's out there campaigning for it. What what do we need to do to further our cause? I th- I see that we're picking up steam, but I'm not clear that we're quite there yet. I think that's fair. Um, so I think look, the the reason why we're picking up steam is that um, one, there's a, a crisis going on, and everyone recognizes there's a crisis. So the current system, what well, you know, Obamacare was posed as the solution to the crisis. And they passed it. Instead of solving the problem, it's actually uh, prolonged it. Um, you know, it, it did it did some good things like expand Medicaid in the states that would allow for it. But there's so many states that uh, refuse to expand Medicaid that even still, it doesn't solve the problem. And when you start thinking of this as well, how do you improve the marketplace? Healthcare is not a normal marketplace. It's not like uh, you know building widgets and selling widgets. It's not building cars and selling cars. It's a very different uh, animal, and it doesn't um, lend itself to market solutions, um, uh, which both Republicans and you know many many Democrats have long said. Well, let's you know that's sort of a neoliberal thing where markets can solve everything. Well, the market can obviously not solve the healthcare crisis, and um, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, just on a pure policy level, that some Democrats are finally getting that, um, you know, because basically all the market solutions have been tried and have failed. I mean, we've we've had the benefit of the Affordable Care Act of Obamacare in the sense that, well, we saw that didn't work, right? And uh, maybe that needed to happen, maybe. 
uh, for folks to finally say, all right, well, maybe we actually need a, a bigger, um, broader, real solution to the problem. So what we're, the key thing is that there's a mass movement growing across the country. There's people at the grassroots, again, not tied to any particular political party, who are saying, we need a real solution to the problem, and Medicare for All is, is it. And I think only that mass movement that grows in size and intensity will finally get us over the finish line. I, I think we're seeing more candidates running for office at all levels of government in this cycle, um, campaigning on Medicare for All than we've ever seen. It's quite remarkable, uh, including you know people not just running for the House and Senate, but people running for governorships, and and many who actually have won their primaries already. Um, so Gavin Newsom in California, Ben Jealous in uh, in Maryland. Uh, there's many um, uh, uh, Mayor Gillum in Florida is running on single payer. Aaron Murphy uh, running for governor of uh, Minnesota is running on single payer. Uh, Cynthia Nixon is running in New York State for on single payer. When I was 13. My mother found a lump in her breast that she rightly suspected was cancerous. She was unemployed. She had no health insurance. She went out and got the first job she could find that offered health coverage, and then she waited a month. Because she was afraid that if she got it checked out right away, the health insurance company would say it was a pre-existing condition and would refuse to pay for her treatment. After four weeks, she went to the doctor, and she had to act surprised when he pointed out the lump. None of this would happen in a rational, functioning healthcare system. We shouldn't have to depend on our employers for health insurance, and we certainly shouldn't have to lie to our doctors in order to get the treatment we need. Healthcare should be a human right, not a privilege for those who can afford it. When I'm governor, we'll pass the New York Health Act and create a single-payer Medicare for All system that covers every New Yorker. It'll dramatically lower the cost of healthcare by taking on the greed of big pharma and insurance companies who make billions off of human suffering. Single-payer health care in New York isn't a pipe dream. It's already passed the state assembly four years in a row, but every time it has been blocked in the Senate thanks to Governor Cuomo's IDC. Every single New Yorker can have good health care with no co-pays and no deductibles, but first, we have to start sending Democrats to Albany who stand with people, not corporations. Be sure to vote in the Democratic primary on Thursday, September 13th. We can do this. There's many others. Uh, uh, Jared uh, Polis in Colorado won his primary for governor of Colorado, ran on single payer. Uh, because, again, from a state perspective, it's an unsustainable situation, right? Uh, they see costs going up and up. And what, what, you know, the interesting thing about it is that taxpayer money is already uh, uh, paying for, depending on the state, somewhere between 60, 75 percent of healthcare costs in, in these states. It's already doing that, whether it's federal, state, or local money. But again, so we're, the taxpayers are already paying. They're just not getting the benefit of that because, again, there's multiple payers. You can Some of it goes to the VA, some of it goes to Medicare, some of it goes to Medicaid, some of it goes to uh, private insurance plans uh, uh, for uh, government employees, some of it goes for TRICARE, for the military. And uh, that, again, that sort of segmented uh, market solution obviously doesn't help things. Uh, but I, I think uh, the more people that are running and that people are supporting them, saying this is, this is no longer a so-called fringe idea, this is, this is now getting into the mainstream, 
the better chance that we have, not just of, of getting Democrats elected to the House, for example, in November, but actually getting pro-Medicare for all Democrats elected to the House so that come the next session that we can take this up in a serious way in the House at minimum. And let's get that done. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of our fellow, I'm a union member. You're obviously a policy director for a union. I'm, um, I'm a little bit distraught about some of the unions not getting behind single payer. Um, specifically, we had a situation here in California where we did have some, um, in the primary, some folks running under a Medicare for All banner. And SEIU California intentionally backed the more centrist Democrats that weren't campaigning on that and were campaigning on saving the ACA. What is the reason for this? There must be there must be some um, identifiable reason as to why a union would want to keep their managed care plan versus not see Medicare for All as a better solution. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, yes. So, um, so on the one hand, we actually uh, we went to the National AFL-CIO convention last October in St. Louis. And a resolution that was brought forward by our union and 11 other national unions um, uh, passed the national convention that called call for Medicare for All. And that was the strongest statement ever by the national AFL-CIO. And I would say other, many other state uh, uh, AFL-CIO federations have done the same, not all of them, but some of them have. Um, I would say more and more unions, uh, I'm giving you the good news first. <laughs> I would say more and more unions are, are, you know, you know, are clear advocates. I could, you know, I could name many, um, uh, for this because they, they know that their attempt to, uh, deal with this at the bargaining table is no longer tenable. Um, it's the unions that think that the only reason why workers would join their unions is because of the Healthcare plans that they negotiate across the bargaining table with employers, they they are of the belief that that's what why people join the union, and um, but they're still in the same economic straits that everyone else is in, which is again negotiating worse and worse plans. Not, and you know, and this is not faulting them. This is just economic realities. Uh, negotiating plans that put more and more costs onto the backs of employees. Uh, unable to, you know, leverage through, you know, industrial action, uh, their employers and finding, you know, uh, you know, it used to be in many industries, retirees, for example, would be guaranteed healthcare. I worked in the mining industry for many years, and that was a, you know, a standard. There, and other industries the same way. That's no longer right. I mean, uh, it's just untenable. And so people have to come to terms with, look, it's no longer possible for unions to provide this, you know, the bargain, this kind of excellent care uh, and not be under enormous economic pressure from these employers who want to shift costs. And when that comes to be, then, then these unions will, you know, and that's, that's in the private sector, it's in the public sector. Um, you know, you see this all over the place. It's municipal governments, county governments, state governments trying to shift the cost of health care to their employees. And uh, they, there's really only one solution to this, which is you've got to take it out of the realm of employment altogether 
uh, and make it as a social right, just like you know uh, many other social benefits that we have that we rely on government to do. And that's what, again, most industrialized countries uh, uh, provide. Agree with that. So um, that's actually a viable explanation, and it makes a little bit of sense to me. But I'm also concerned by the fact that they think that that's the only reason somebody would, would join a union and it wouldn't be for the pay, uh, protective pay benefits, et cetera. And I have to be honest, I have seen a degradation in our union health plan over the years. I've been a guild member now for over 20 years and our health plan isn't anywhere near what it used to be in the nineties. So, and I know it costs uh, the union more money, you know, so you're right. The pressures are there and it's not, it's not a viable solution. We need to we need to get more. Um, we need to get all of our unions, brothers and sisters, to get behind this idea that unions can stand on their own without having healthcare as a selling point, and that healthcare needs to be a public good. So, well, and what they do in Canada is um, so things the benefits that are not in the uh, government a package of benefits that everyone in the country enjoys. You know, for example, they don't have optical and dental. Uh, in their plan in Canada. Not that they don't want it, but they just haven't won it yet. Uh, They actually don't have uh, pharmacy benefits in Canada, which is they're trying to win right now. There's an active campaign in Canada to make uh, uh, prescription meds part of the benefit package. But for those things, then unions are able to bargain supplemental insurance plans, right, that cover those issues. So there's still a role for unions and union negotiated healthcare to cover supplemental, but you know, as you can imagine, there's much less money required for a few things like dental and optical than there would be for catastrophic uh, health events, uh, for hospitalization, for things like that, um, that um, you know, rightly should be covered, but uh, by the government. But with that said, I mean, we're trying to pass legislation that would be comprehensive, that would provide all those things. Um, you know, including dental, including optical. There's, there's millions and millions of people, for example, in this country who have no dental care whatsoever. None. And it's a real, it's a real health crisis. It is. It leads to disease. Uh, I don't think people realize how important oral care is. Uh, you're right on that. So yeah. that's, uh, that's good to know, and I'm glad Canada's pushing forward on that. I think one of the things that we've seen change over the last two, three years as well is – uh, the propaganda that has been so easily bought by the public from the healthcare industry is no longer being bought. So this, uh, the idea that quote unquote socialized medicine is, you know, this horrible thing that's like, we're going to become communists if we adopt it. Uh, you know, all of the things that they've used to the years to scare people away from this concept of single payer have sort of, I, I think part of it is the young millennials aren't, aren't buying the narrative, even though maybe some of the boomers still buy it. But there's definitely a shift that's happened, and um, I think it's a, an important piece of the puzzle because the messaging the last 20 years from the healthcare industry has been exceedingly effective. Um, having said that, I still think the pharmaceutical company has a lot of the population in its grips. And, you know, we had a pharmaceutical bill here in the state of California that Senator Sanders was sponsoring that would have allowed us to have uh, negotiations for lower drug costs. And we had the VA administration come out and, and talk badly about the bill and spend money trying to um, stop it from being passed. And, it, and the bill did fail. And I was a little bit disappointed to see that. What was their fear? Do you know? 
Well, this is just simply a giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, those who don't want uh, these cost controls. I mean, again, you know, if you have a, a uh, large-scale buyer like the government, like the PA, for example, which is the only entity in the government that can bargain with the pharmaceutical industry, um, you get enormous cost savings. And so the only argument against that is... Um, uh, you know why? Why should why should the government be paying more for these meds, or why you know why should uh, individuals be paying more? Uh, or if you're in the hospital, you're charged an astronomical sum for something as simple as aspirin, uh, much less for for prescription uh, meds. Um, uh, there's no there's no logic to that whatsoever. And um, so you know these bills that would basically mimic what the VA does and allow for government to negotiate, allow the Medicare Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to negotiate, make perfect sense, um, as well as allowing for the importation of, of meds from Canada, for example, you know, as long as, you know, the, the uh, you know, safe, health and safety is protected. Um, that make, make a lot of sense because, uh, again, in other industrialized countries, they don't pay nearly the amount of money per per uh, medication that we pay, um, and it's because they negotiate these things. I don't know why the United States need to need to be the world chumps on this. Yeah. <laughs> because we live under a corporate oligarchy. Our Congress is bought. I I think they're fully aware of it. I mean, look at the whole brouhaha that happened with uh, Cory Booker a year and a half ago. Let me ask you about drugs, because that's obviously an important part of health care. And you know Bernie Sanders was very critical of you and 12 other Democrats for voting against a bill uh, that would have allowed the importation of drugs uh, from Canada. Um, and and uh, I know that you've answered as to why you voted that way. Um, but he was very harsh. He said you lacked, you and the other Democrats, lacked the guts to stand up to the pharmaceutical industry. Well, well, first of all, you know that that was not a bill. That was, it was a an amendment. It was a resolution. It okay. was not even something that if everybody in the Senate voted would have changed one thing. It was a late-night resolution during a voterama that all some of us were asking is, hey, put some safety requirements on it. They weren't put on. And so I went right to work. I said, hey, Bernie, uh, uh, to Senator Sanders, excuse me, let's work together. Senator Casey, Senator Sanders, and I put our heads together, worked on a bill that is, is incredible. Not only will it allow imports, but it gives the safety guarantees that a lot of us were concerned about. This has nothing to do with pharma, it doesn't do with courage. It's about good legislation because while most Canadians are getting access to really high quality drugs, if we just did that without the kind of safety provisions we put in there, you could see rogue pharmacies popping up, rebranding drugs, drugs coming in from other countries and saying these are now Canadian drugs. So we put things like track and trace technology and other things to make sure our consumers are getting quality drugs. So you know that there are progressives out there who are looking for a white knight and were disappointed in that vote. And in addition, I think in 2014, you were the number one recipient of donations from pharmaceutical companies and, and uh, executives of, of them. Uh, how can these people who are very wary of big pharma and very wary of the fact that rising drug prices is one of the main reasons why healthcare costs are going up so much, that you're going to be on their side and not the side of all these pharmaceutical companies that are in your state? Where he was claiming um, that if we allowed for the importation of drugs from Canada, it would be uh, a problem with safety. But it turned out, like you said, it turned out that the drugs were coming from the same facilities here in the United States before they went to Canada. So there was it was a completely bullshit argument. But 
here we were. That's right. You know, and he had taken a big chunk of money from from industry. So I think I think one of the biggest problems we face in that area is uh, is the money in politics, and it's something we see every day. We have regulatory capture at uh, the FDA. We have a lot of bot congressmen that choose to side with industry because they're, they're large donations and they want to win their next uh, election. So we can go down the list, but it is, it's another problem we face. Um, one of the things that bothers me about the pharmaceutical industry is they are constantly making this argument that the reason they charge higher drug prices in the United States is that the money goes into research and development. And if they don't get that money, they won't be able to come up with new life-saving medications. This is the argument they make. But if you look at the breakdown of where they're spending in, that's not true. The majority of their spending actually goes into marketing. And we see it, if you turn on the network TV these days, all you see is pharmaceutical ads. It's insane. So uh, how do we fix this? I remember a time when the pharmaceutical com- companies weren't allowed to run commercials uh, and market to consumers in this way. And that changed because obviously the industry lobbied Congress to get that passed. Uh, I just I feel like we're so far down the rabbit hole on this issue. Um, is there anything that you folks are working at 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 the union to try to thwart this onset coming from the pharmaceutical industry? Well, I, I would call um, your listeners' attention. There was there was a really good study that was released in May of this year um, by the Physicians for National Health Program and uh, a series of authors um, led by Dr. Adam Gaffney, uh, who's at Harvard. Um, called the Healing and Ailing Pharmaceutical System, Prescription for Reform in the U.S. and Canada. And so um, uh, that has a you know in-depth study. It, it confirms exactly what you said, which is this is a myth that per- perpetuated by the pharmaceutical industry that they need these high costs for R&D, and it's just simply not the case. Um, and, you know, they, they have a, um, a, a series of, suggestions here for the U.S. government to undertake in order to um, ensure that uh, people have access to uh, safe, innovative, and affordable meds. So um, I encourage people to look at that because it was a really in-depth study that they did um, that would uh, complement, you know, the single-payer Medicare for All program that, that, that we're all pushing. Do you think there's a chance that we'll ever be able to undo the commercial marketing from the pharmaceutical industry? Do you, I mean, do you feel that's been damaging or is that just something that's in my head? <laughs> well, it's a ridiculous waste of money, number one, um, because we, you know, it's, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars spent on TV ads. And I'm of a certain age where <laughs> I yeah. remember before uh, prescription drugs were allowed to be advertised. It used mm-hmm. to be not allowed. Um, it's a fairly recent phenomenon in this country to allow uh uh, medications to be advertised on television like that. Um, you know, they're trying to create demand, obviously. Um, that's the whole point of advertising. And have people go into their doctors and, and uh, say, well, I, I saw I might have these symptoms, so therefore I need this drug. And um, uh, that's, that's kind of a silly way to to uh, have safe therapeutic care. So um, I do think it's, it's just a huge waste. And uh, if you add their profits and their administrative costs and uh, other other costs of uh, of the pharmaceutical industry where it's one of the reasons why um, you know we're getting uh, done with so much money 
Yeah, I agree. Um, so we have a bill here in California, Healthy California, which is our state level single payer bill. Uh, I obviously I'd like to see the federal bill pass, but if we can't pass the federal bill, maybe we go state by state and pass single payer state by state. Do you think that might be a viable alternative um, for getting Medicare for all in the country? Well, I, I do think, you know, for for a lot of states, we, of course, uh, our union is uh, a key backer of Healthy California bill. Uh, we did get it passed in the state Senate and then it got stalled by the Speaker of the House um, in the in the state House. And so uh, we've been trying to call uh, him out on that uh, and also, you know, demand that the, you know, the governor um, step up here and hopefully we'll have a new governor uh, next year who will be sympathetic to these issues and want to find a real solution if uh, if uh, Gavin Newsom is able to succeed. But we've got um, similar bills as the Healthy California bill uh, introduced in the Maryland legislature in New York State, where it's also passed one chamber in uh, Iowa and Florida um, and a number of other places. And um, it, it certainly is possible for states to do it. I think the preferable route would be a federal bill because you'd get all the economies of scale by doing it across the country um, through through one system. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, California is what the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, you know, it certainly is capable of having a healthcare system for its people. And um, and financing it. And there's no, there's, you know, we, you know we've, uh, suggested many different ways to finance such a system that would be a relief, financial relief for the vast majority of people in the state and, and a relief for the vast majority of businesses in the state. So um, there is a way. Um, and I think by having these state bills as well, it gets people to pay attention to the issue and, and seeing that there actually is a solution. So, you know, we, we're fighting this at the state level. We're fighting this at the federal level. Um, and uh, we we think you can do both at the same time. Yeah, I agree. We can do both at the same time. And also, um, I, you know, I think of the way that California affected the EPA standards um, and emission standards on cars, for example, when we start passing our own state legislation. Because when you are the fifth largest economy, you have pool. So uh, a manufacturer, for example, isn't going to manufacture one single car for California and then a different one for everywhere else. It wouldn't make any sense economically speaking. So maybe it's a way for us to uh, help push the federal forward is what I'm thinking. Well, and we have to remember that's exactly how it happened in Canada. So the um, Canadian system started in Saskatchewan as a provincial measure um, and then it spread to other provinces and ultimately it it became a national program. But it started at the provincial level and the then premier of Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas, is is a nationwide hero in Canada. I mean, because he was the, the essentially the father of Medicare, as they call it, which is healthcare for everybody in, in Canada. The life of Tommy Douglas touched us all. His idealism and vision for Canada were born out of the harsh realities of the Great Depression in the 30s. Tommy Douglas, a Baptist minister, traded his pulpit for a political podium. His legacy is a rich one. Tommy Douglas formed North America's first socialist government. He gave us Medicare. Today, the Canadian social and political fabric is richer because of Tommy Douglas. Tonight, a portrait of one of Canada's greatest politicians. Everything will be exactly the same as it is now, except one simple thing. 
That is that instead of the doctor sending the bill to you, he will send the bill to the medical care plant. Now surely there's nothing very complicated about this. Tommy Douglas is the father of Canadian Medicare. A simple idea, but a revolutionary one. Douglas campaigned for it. He fought for it. He had a fighting spirit, a dedication to social equality. Those were the hallmarks of his career. That's fantastic. Um, I wanted to switch gears for a second in talking about what's sort of been called Robin Hood tax. Um, I know National Nurses United has recently gotten behind this bill, and I think it's a really good idea. Um, for the audience, let me explain the bill for a second. Uh, it's basically a small tax that is imposed on speculative trading on Wall Street. So it's very little money, but it applies to only high-frequency trading. So it's not going to affect small investors that are long-term investors at all. It's more uh, geared toward, uh, you know, the big investment banks that are doing, you know, multiple trades a day on trying to make pennies just on a mathematical spread sort of a thing. Um, but I think it could be used to not only finance some of the um, Medicare for All program, but also things like um, public university. We used to have, you know, like here in California, the UC system used to be almost fully funded by the state of California, and now it's down to less than 10%. So we, you know, again, we would all benefit if we refinanced our uh, public university system. But I was glad to see that you folks are supporting it. Um, what do you think the odds of this bill passing are? And how much dark money have you guys seen come into um, uh, into this race trying to get the bill defeated? Well, so we've been we've been backing it from day one. Um, uh, Congressman Ellison um, and uh, Senator Sanders are the bill sponsors in the House and the Senate. Well, I, I agree that we need to figure out a way to shore up public social insurance programs and investments. I think that's a good idea. I think selling off America's natural resources probably is not the proposal I would support. What I would support is just a very small sales tax on stocks, bonds, and derivatives uh, that uh, we see in other countries that America used to have, uh, a, a high roller fee on Wall Street in the past. It's been supported by a lot of economists, uh, even Republican and Democrat politicians. I think that would be a much better way to go because when Wall Street got itself in a whole lot of trouble in 2007 and 8, the American people stepped up and bailed them out. And I just think it's not too much to ask, to ask them to um, put money into a fund that would help uh, take care of the investment needs of our country. So I would prefer uh, a bill that I have called the Inclusive Prosperity Act. Um, and as you said, it's, it would be a very small tax on the trading of stocks, bonds, and other uh, financial instruments like derivatives. Very, very small. So on on stocks, it's only 0.5%. On bonds, it would be 0.1%. Uh, and on derivatives, it's a fraction of that even. And even those, at those small rates, um, given the amount of trading that happens in the United States, uh, that would produce in the range of 200 to $300 billion annually. That's a lot of money, even in the, in the, uh, scheme, in the sense of the you know, federal budget. That's still a lot of money uh, per year. 
And that's the, you know, that, for example, is could definitely be helpful for financing Medicare for All, but also things like uh, free tuition at public colleges and universities, which was Senator Sanders' um, uh, platform during the presidential campaign. He sponsored a bill on that and basically has looked to the Robin Hood tax to, uh, to finance that. And uh, Congresswoman uh, Jay Paul from Seattle is the House sponsor on that bill. Um, so, you know, that would cost, I think, if I'm remembering right, somewhere around uh, $70 billion a year. You would basically have free, college, free tuition at public colleges and universities for $70 billion. So you say, all right, well, if this thing will raise two, $200 to $300 billion a year, and only 70 of it is needed for free college, get rid of student debt, which is just in outrageous proportions and could be catastrophic for the entire economy much less the huge burden it does on people um, trying to get an education. You know, there's money left over for fighting HIV AIDS. There's money left over for how, you know, housing. There's money left over for other health care issues. And um, that's a lot of money to go around uh, for programs that meet human needs. So we've been um, uh, avid uh, proponents of this uh, from the beginning. And um, uh, other other countries do this. Uh, there's no adverse effect um, uh, on their stock market, uh, on their trading, on their corporations. There's a lot of trading, as you say, that's uh, actually very um, uh, nefarious. Uh, there's just high-frequency trading now that happens purely by algorithm, where uh, there's no human beings involved. They program these computers to trade based on the algorithm. And they're literally trading, buying and selling on the microsecond. Um, and uh, that's actually very dangerous to the stability of the market overall. There have been crashes on on Wall Street um, just due to high-frequency traders uh, and their computers going amok. Uh, and, you know, essentially, you put a tiny tax on, they change the algorithm, and a lot of those trades, therefore, become less economical. Uh, importantly, this is not a tax on the holding of stocks or bonds, right? You can hold. Uh, it's just simply on the buying and selling. So those uh, long-term investors, patient investors, which are actually better for the economy, uh, pension funds, for example, by and large, are, are longer-term, more patient investors. They're not churning stocks and bonds uh, you know, every single day like that. They're not going to have a negative impact. It's simply the people who are uh, hyper-trading. And, uh, you know, in the process, we uh, we raise a lot of money that can do a lot of good. I think it's a great idea. And I should mention that other global markets are already doing it. So we would be adopting something that's done um, in European markets already. And I think it's also a way to rebalance uh, the income inequality in this country. I mean, the 1% have been just extracting enormous amounts of wealth from our system for years. So maybe it's high time um, they got taxed something that allowed them to pay back some of the wealth they've extracted. I mean, these guys were bailed out in 2008, and they turned around and gave themselves fat bonuses um, and a whole host of things that I thought was, you know, really not on par with uh, where we are at as far as our values. So I think it's a good idea, and I think it's um, something we should do, and I hope that it passes, and I hope that all the activists out there get behind this and um, call their senators and their reps um, and see if we can get this thing done. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit. Yeah. 
I wanted to talk about workplace violence because this was an interesting um, thing that I didn't know about. So you folks have been working on new rules for prevention of workplace violence in hospitals. And this is something that occurs that I would imagine most of the population in the country are unaware of. So walk me through a little bit about um, what you're doing in this area and why it's necessary. Well, yeah, so I, I do think people are not aware, but uh, nurses are subjected um, more than any other group of workers in any other industry to incredible violence on the job. Um, and this is happening for a lot of reasons, but, you know, hospitals are high-pressure uh, places. Um, there are, you know, whether it's patients, whether it's family members, whether it's people coming off the street, um, uh, there's violence, and it's not just in the emergency rooms. It's happening in labor and delivery uh, departments of hospitals. It's happening certainly in psych uh, units of hospitals. It's happening in intensive care units. I mean, it's it's quite an epidemic. And this is actually it's a global epidemic. I just came back from a meeting in uh, in Australia. We have a, a global organization called Global Nurses United, and uh, you know, violence against nurses is happening in Australia and happening in Brazil and happening in Israel. There's actually a big strike happening just over this issue by the Israeli Nurses Union, um, you know, over uh, a nurse who just got stabbed in the stomach by a patient and uh, the government uh, refuses to do anything about it. So in California, we've, uh, because our union is, is large and, and uh, powerful, um, uh, we had a situation where a nurse uh, who was working in a clinic in a prison um, uh, was um, uh, in, in treating the patient. And uh, earlier, the, the there was some bad lighting in the clinic, so you know the nurse said, "Look to to the to the uh, prison officials. Look, we need better lighting in these in these uh, rooms." And so their answer was, "All right, we'll put a desk lamp in." Uh, so here's your better lighting. And uh, very tragically, uh nurse was treating this patient, and he took the desk lamp, and he beat her to death with it. Um, now, anyone who was, you know, had any sense would know not to put a, a an object like that in a room uh, where people could use it as a weapon. There were other solutions to the lighting problem than simply putting a desk lamp in. And so that's why... Our focus has been on prevention. It's not, um, you know, how do we punish people who are violent, which you know, obviously if people are violent, that's already against the law, but it doesn't stop the violence that happens against nurses. We, we then were able to pass a bill in the state legislature um, in Sacramento, and um, uh, Cal OSHA uh, has now uh, promulgated the rules uh, for that legislation and basically requires healthcare employers to have a plan in place after consulting with their workforce, their nurses and their other healthcare workers to who know best, of course, what the dangers are in the places that they work. Sometimes it's as simple as looking at lighting, looking at, um, you know, uh, the way, uh, you know, what's available to be used as a weapon. Are there, uh, are there panic buttons that actually go to someone who can respond um, you know, very simple things that uh, the workers know best about what the dangers are and to have that, that prevention plan in place. And now we've got a, a bill in Congress that Congressman Rokana from Silicon Valley has introduced at our behest. 
that would do the same thing on the federal level to actually require federal OSHA to have this standard in place so that there's prevention uh, in healthcare workplaces. So, uh, yeah, it's a serious, serious problem. And, uh, uh, you know, nursing is hard enough as it is, um, whether you're in a hospital or, or a hospital or a prison clinic. Um, it's, it's a very stressful job. And, you know, we've got to, we've got to address it and not make these places so, so dangerous. This nurse was beat to death. I just, I'm hearing this story and it's making my head spin. And, you know, you have to wonder how much of that's driven by profit margins. You know, it might have cost too much for them to actually do the right thing and put the proper lighting in versus putting what is possibly a deadly weapon in the room. It's like, it's unacceptable. Um, it makes me think right. back. Yeah, it makes me think back in California. Um, I want to say it was around 1998, 1999, 2000. There was a big push for changing the uh, patient ratios, the nurse to patient ratios, because right. of the in- the onslaught of corporate hospitals, et cetera, had, um, you know, they're always looking for economic efficiency. And so there was now these these absurd patient ratios for the nurses, and you were having a hard time recruiting nurses because the work was just too stressful and hard. And, you know, um, also the fear of not being able to save a patient's life because you're responsible for too many patients on the floor at the same time. You know, and at the time, I had a friend that worked in the ER. She's a nurse ER, and um, she was telling me a little bit about those experiences, and I thought it was really appalling. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, this this is uh, life or death. Why are they um, being being so uh, short-sighted? And what what's it going to take? You know, a patient dying and then suing the hospital. You know, is that how this is all going to be driven? But then you guys came in and you had this whole campaign that you put out with commercials or not commercials, but you know, PSAs, etc. And um, you effectively were able to get this passed. Is this something that you also did on a federal level, or was just uh, this just a California thing? Before ratios were put into law, I had 10 patients by myself on night shift. And I had 10-plus patients. I didn't have enough feet, enough hands to get the work done. The patients are calling, and you just can't go to seven, eight people at the same time. After the ratios was achieved in California, they have come back to the profession. I said, if CNA won races for the nurses here, I want to be a part of CNA. I was so happy for ratios. It was a godsend. When the ratios came, it was like, hallelujah, because then you were really able to give true patient care. The thing that changed the most was um, quality of care. You know, I, I was able to really devote myself to every single patient. We're able to consult with each other because there are a lot more nurses on the floor and we're able to support each other and we have all these safeguards in place because of ratio. After the ratios went into effect, patients were better educated on how to take their medications when they got home. And it also guarantees the patient that when you come into the hospital, you're going to be taken care of by a registered nurse. And that's a big difference. It gives me the time to look at their chart and look at the doctor's progress notes so I can see the big picture of what's going on with the patient. I went to this one floor and talked to those nurses. There was two nurses on a floor with over 25 to 30 patients. Patients screaming out in pain. And that's when I knew right then and there, in every state, we got to have ratios. See all the 
the great things that ratios bring to nurses and their patients. Fight for it because the patients deserve it. Fight for it because that's why you came into nursing. Our profession speaks for itself because we are the patient's advocate. No, no, we are. Uh, we have a bill in uh, in the House and Senate. Um, oh, okay. Congresswoman uh, Jan Schakowsky has the bill in the House, and um, uh, Sherrod Brown has the bill in the Senate. Um, so, yeah, our, we were able to pass this in the state of California in 1999, and Gray Davis, then the governor, signed it. But it actually went into effect in earnest in uh, late 2004, early 2005, and so we now have with many years of experience in California with mandatory minimum nurse-to-patient ratios, meaning, again, that there's a limit of how many patients each nurse can care for at any given time, right? So it's a, it's by shift. It's an all at all times issue because you can't sort of average it out. Uh, it's about how many patients any particular nurse can care for. And, it, you know, the number... Um, is written in the law depending on what kind of unit they're in. So an ER will have a different ratio than, say, an operating room, or an operating room will be different than, say, labor and delivery. So uh, based on you know uh, nurses' experience of what's needed uh, and what what the upper limits are in an intensive care unit, right? You don't want to have too many patients because it's just simply dangerous. And it is a fact that in the 49 other states who do not have this. California is the only state in the country that has these rules, um, which is uh, is incredible, but it's because the hospital industry spends billions and billions of dollars every year stopping laws like this in state legislatures and in the federal Congress. Um, billions of dollars. There's really no standard in law or regulation outside of the state of California that says what what, how many patients should be cared for. It just says something vague like it should be safe. Well, it's not safe. And there have been now uh, literally uh, study after study, academic peer-reviewed studies done that thousands of lives are lost every year in American hospitals because there are too many patients per uh, nurse. In some places, you're talking about eight, nine, ten patients sometimes even more than that. Uh, we had a situation here in Washington, D.C., where um, there was a psych unit in an acute care hospital, uh, 26 patients in the psych unit, two nurses. I mean, you can imagine um, how dangerous that is. I mean, and that's, that's all over the country. You see those kind of numbers. Why do they do it? Because the hospitals simply want to want to save money. Um, you know, nurses cost money, and so they would rather uh, work them to death. And so you have this amazing, unnecessary level of turnover and problem of retention of experienced nurses, and the hospitals churn, churn, churn nurses all the time. A lot of nurses come out of nursing school, for example, are very excited about uh, practicing their profession, um, have lots of aspirations. And they get burned out after a few years, and they say, look, I didn't get in this uh, profession to see my patients unnecessarily die because um, there simply aren't enough nurses on the job at, the, at a given time. So this is a desperate need um, for safe patient care in our nation's hospitals, and, and we really need to do it. So you bring up a point that I think um, 
I want to talk about for a little sec- second because the hospitals don't want to pay the nurses salaries. Let's let's talk about this for a second because even though some people might look at a nurse's salary and think it's high, I'm going to say it's not high given the amount of time a nurse has to spend in school. People need to sort of come to an understanding that you just don't go and get a BA in arts and you're a nurse. You have to have, um, you know, you have to get your Bachelor of Science in Biology. You have to get the equivalent of a master's in um, or, or nursing school. I know here in California, you can go to the Cal State schools. Some of them have nursing programs for uh, as a master's. But you have to have a deep knowledge um, that's akin to what a, a doctor's has, maybe not a surgeon, but you, you, you still need to know what these things are. And um, you have to be highly educated in this area. And when you don't have enough nurses in, in, in a critical care, like this uh, example you're giving, or the psychology, you know, the example you gave there, that's frightful. Two people, that's absolutely insane. I mean, this is these are patients that require a lot of care. So I, I think that the corporations are kind of missing the boy because how is this not going to eventually catch up with them? I, or is it the nurses that are getting blamed if something goes wrong and not the hospital? How is that playing out? Well, it does play out. I mean, the, you know, the hospital is susceptible to um, malpractice suits. Doctors yeah. are susceptible. Nurses are susceptible. Um, the, you know, there's all sorts of horrible things that happen. I mean, the, in the end, they actually do save money. I mean, there were all sorts of scares that the California hospital industry tried to put forward to the elected officials that they, if California imposed ratios, that they, you know, all these hospitals would go out of business. Guess what? Not one did. Not one. Because and they're doing they're making a lot of money, believe me. Uh, these hospitals, they are. What they found is that, um, you know, one they had less turnover, less, which is costly. I mean, depending on what area of the country you're in, um, it can be extremely expensive to recruit and train any a single nurse. So if you spend all that money recruiting and training, and that same nurse goes out the door. Um, then you've wasted all that money and you've got to spend it again recruiting a new nurse. And uh, believe me, if you're a patient in a hospital, uh, you want an experienced nurse there. But when you, the hospital, because, you know, there's a lot of on-the-job training that goes on in nursing. And um, you want someone, but you, you'll find in a lot of hospitals around the country that, you know, you, the most experienced nurse on the unit has maybe three years or four years. That's a frightening situation for patient care. Um, when that happens, because and it's because they have pushed out people who just are fed up, they're burned out, they go home in tears, literally, because they're worried that they didn't provide the best care that they wanted to provide because they simply had too many patients. You're in a if you're in a medical surgical unit and two of your patients are coding at the same time, what are you supposed to do? You know, That's it's not insane. like there's all these spare nurses waiting around, and I, you know, because. You're in Los Angeles. Hollywood, unfortunately, is really bad at portraying what actually happens in hospitals because they make it seem like doctors do everything. But guess what? You know, I would say for 23 hours and 40 minutes of every day, a patient will never see a doctor. So who they're seeing is the registered nurse who has the the legal responsibility of providing the direct hands-on care to that patient, and that's who's taking care of them. That's why people are in hospitals. It's because they need nursing care. Uh, they, you know, if it, all they needed was doctor care, they wouldn't be in the hospital. They would be doing an outpatient uh, because, for number one, the insurance industry would never pay for it. Um, so, right. if, if that's all you need is a 
you know, is doctor's care, not nursing care, then you're not going to be an inpatient in an acute care facility. You, you People who were there needed, needed to be there because of the nursing care. And, you know, that's, that's who, that's who our members are. They're the ones providing the care and they cannot possibly physically look after uh, too many patients at one time without um, something going wrong. Yeah, I agree. You like your example of two patients coding it, but that's what, yeah, what are you supposed to do? That's too stressful. It's too crazy. And it's how people, um, how we lose people. Uh, so are, is there a, a national standard as far as education goes for nursing or is that run by the states? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, you know, each state has a board of nursing. And so that's done at the state level and what their standards are and what, you know, how nursing schools are accredited, et cetera. So, okay. um, you know, there's a lot of very talented young people coming out of nursing school. And we should be providing the environment in in uh, in uh, hospitals that accommodate them, that welcome them, that uh, will allow them to thrive and to, you know, save lives that they want to, uh, that's why they, they came into it. And, you know, with the passion and, and, uh, humanism that they came into the profession to do, I mean, that's, it's very touching. And they, as you say, they come in with an enormous education, um, uh, and nursing is an art and a science. It's both, it's hands-on, um, it's a caring profession and we want, we need more people to be doing that kind of work because it's so essential. It is essential. And you're right. It does have a component of both. Not only do you have to understand the biological aspects of what you're doing, the pharmaceuticals, um, et cetera, you also have to be a nurturing person that provides um, all of the other side of the equation that maybe a doctor doesn't necessarily provide. What are some of the other areas that you folks are advocating for legislation? And I know you've um, been looking at some environmental causes and some other things. What's next on your horizon and your platform? Well, we are. We are very active um, uh, on environmental issues, on the climate crisis, on uh, you know things uh, locally about uh, pipelines. We were active against the uh, the pipeline um, uh, from Canada, and like Chicago. We our nurses were on the front lines of of getting rid of uh, these. Uh, uh, coke piles um, that were just, you know, sitting there, and the wind would blow up, and these uh, uh, coke, you know, this is coke from like uh, steel mills. Ho ho! Bad coke has got to go. Hey hey! Ho ho! Bad coke has got to go. Hey hey! Ho ho! Bad coke has got to go. in front of Alderman Pope's office because he has refused to listen to us. And over and over, we've asked him to stand with the community and he has refused. He's dodged our questions when he came to public meetings and we asked him, what is, where is his stand on this? He's dodged our questions. He said, well, we, uh, we don't know if we can really ban this stuff. But he's he getting, says, you know, he's, he's an envelope from the Koch brothers. How much but, 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 when the, but when the Koch brothers want to talk to him, he's all here. He jumps. When they say jump, he says how high. And we know that he's accepted 
thousands of dollars yes. in campaign contributions from the from the anti-union, anti-environment Koch brothers that are dumping just a few blocks from here. He's a puppet. He's all we know. He says he's for the people, but we know the truth. Well, you keep voting the asshole He's a puppet of the Koch brothers and the companies that want to dump in our neighborhood. So for too long, Alderman Pope has been able to. To get away with this, and I think now the 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 wool is being pulled over, the everything's being pulled aside, and we're able to see what kind of guy he really is and who he really stands with. He doesn't stand with our community. He's proven that today. He's nowhere to be seen. Um, uh, would blow up and get you know particulates in the in in the air, and people would breathe it, and you know have horrible asthma problems. Asthma is a huge issue in terms of air pollution that our nurses see all the time. That's been aggravated by uh, by environmental pollution, uh, but we all, you know, all of us are um, have a stake in the climate crisis, which is going to do us all in. So, you know, again, as patient advocates, uh, nurses feel uh, the need to speak up and to be on the forefront of uh, of the movement to to actually do something. So, there's again bills in state legislatures and the federal Congress that we're advocating for. As well as you know, when there's a fight locally um, at oil refineries or you know these coke piles or the pipelines, then we're we're active on those issues as well. Okay. What other is there any other issues we didn't discuss that you wanted to talk about? No, I think I think that's it. I mean, uh, you know, we're also very active with with the rest of the labor movement on trying to restore the right of workers to organize. Mm. Um, we were part of the campaign in Missouri to overturn the right to work law that the Missouri state legislature passed and just had a big win. success this week yeah. uh, on a referendum to overturn that. Um, we're, um, you know, we were uh, appalled by the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in the uh, Janus case mm. um, uh, about a month ago or so that, um, you know, um, allowed for uh, public sector employers to um, not insist that um, in unionized shops that, that workers be members of the union. Um, so there's there's struggles going on on all those issues, but also we need legislation that actually restores the right of workers to be able to bargain collectively and, and exercise their right to freedom of association, which simply doesn't exist in this country right now. And it's a foundational issue, uh, not just for, for unions, but it's foundational for, you know, the First Amendment in this country that um, people have a right to free speech in their workplaces, have a right to assemble, um, and be able, therefore, to come together in and uh, have more uh, power to be able to bargain collectively with their employer. That's, that's how... Uh, not just wages improved and working conditions improved in this country back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but um, also allowed for uh, you know the flourishing of, of uh, other movements like the civil rights movement and the women's movement. You know, unions right. were part and parcel of those camp- those movements and campaigns as well. So we we need to be able to uh, to restore the right of workers to organize in this country, and we're we're part of that campaign as well. Fantastic. So activists out there that want to get involved with supporting some of the things that you folks are working on, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, Should they go to your website? Do you have a place where volunteers can sign up uh, and get involved? 
Uh, absolutely. So if they go to our website, nationalnursesunited.org, um, they will see um, all these issues up there and more um, and be able to volunteer. We're particularly um, excited about the increased activity on the Medicare for All campaign and people can get involved um, in their local communities to uh, put pressure on their elected officials, but not just on that issue, on any number of issues. We just put out a scorecard um, on five health and environmental uh, bills up on our website um, that where we're scoring every member of the House on co-sponsored those bills. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's probably the best way for people to get in touch with us and, and get involved. And if folks uh, want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Levin. 